We're back with Civil Action. This is Brian Kabatek coming to you with Shant Karnikian. Say hello, Shant. Hello. And in our podcast, we do our best to try to cover important cases that affect plaintiff's practice uh, in California, meaning California Court of Appeal, California Supreme Court, Ninth Circuit. Sometimes the United States Supreme Court was still trying to explain to Shant what the United States Supreme Court is. And today's no exception. I think actually today we have three really good cases for the plaintiff's bar and one not so good case, but maybe cautionary. And uh, tell us a little bit about the cases we're going to cover. Sure. First, we're going to cover a California Supreme Court case that has to do with class actions and the question of ascertainability, which you will see has been a question that has kind of plagued the uh, class action practice for a long time. Good case. Then we're going to talk about a Ninth Circuit Court of Appeal case uh, that has to do with uh, damages and individualized uh, questions of damages. And auto defects. Also a very good case. Uh, then we're going to talk about a uh, arbitration case, a motion to compel arbitration in the context of a uh, decedent in a nursing facility. And lastly, we're going to talk about the trivial defect doctrine and uh, basically slip and falls against government entities. Not such a good case. No, not a good outcome. All right. Where can people find us? They can find us at kbklawyers.com and they can subscribe to us on Apple Podcasts and Spotify and wherever else they're listening to us. They could send their complaints directly to you, Brian, or they can write reviews and write bad things about you online. Thank you. I appreciate that. And I'm looking forward to hearing all the bad things that people are going to be saying about me in the near future. No, I'm sure that some people have nice things to say, like the ones in this office. Like my mother. Yeah. And the people that you, you, you pay. Okay. So my mother and people I pay. Yep. Okay. Yep. So now that we've resolved that, let's jump into our first case today. It's called Noel versus Thrifty Payless. This is a California Supreme Court case. It came out at uh, the very end of July 2019. The unanimous decision, so it's not just the uh, crazy left-wing liberals of the, of the California Supreme Court that, that made these findings. It's um, everybody. Um, and a great case, really good situation. So let's set up the facts very quickly for you. Sure. Something that Sean is uh, intimately familiar with, it's an inflatable outdoor pool. Yep, it's an inflatable pool that you can buy from Rite Aid locations, which is owned by the defendant in this case. For $59.95. Inc. Yeah, and uh, Mr. Noel bought one of these pools. Ms. Noel, sorry, bought one of these pools. And no, I think it's a Mr. Noel. Is Diana Diana a a woman or a man's name? I, I think... Oh, James Noel was one of the plaintiffs in the case, and he died while this case was pending. But anyway, the, did he the, drown in the little baby pool? I don't think so. I think that was one of the problems with the pool that it was very small. So when the Noels opened up this pool that they bought, they noticed that it's a lot smaller than the depiction on the box of the pool. And the opinion is actually pretty cool. You don't see this in a lot of opinions. They have photographs of the box and the packaging on the third page of the opinion, and they have some captions that explain where. So all this originated. The fact that it had pictures made it easier for you to follow and understand. Right. That's I love opinions that have pictures in them. Right. You're now you're just waiting for pop-up opinions, right? Right, right. I try to incorporate a lot of pictures and diagrams into my briefs because I think no, maybe No, don't do that. Uh, no? Ever again. No. no. All right, so let's talk about the case. Here's So it's a UCL and uh, false advertising and CLRA claim effectively. Right, and and I've been doing class action cases for almost 20 years, and early on in class action cases, this was never an issue. You, If you sued someone who legitimately had deceptive false advertising or defective product or whatever the case may be, 
The defendant never came out and said, well, ha, 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 you're never going to be able to ascertain who bought our product. And I've seen in the last, I'd say, eight to ten years, this become certainly more prevalent where defendants, who I'm sure go to conferences and they bring, brainstorm these ideas, have said, yes, our product's defective. Yes, it, doesn't, it, it didn't work or perform the way that we expected it to perform. But you're never going to be able to identify the people who actually bought the product for us. So too bad, too sad. You can't certify your case. And we've lost cases on that on that basis or on those grounds. It's an ascertainability argument, and that's really what uh, the defendant here relied upon. And if you see the, the list of cases that they rely upon, Brian's right. It's all cases that have come down in the last 10, 15 years. So these are kind of recent developments, and uh, ascertainably was sort of the Achilles heel of uh, plaintiffs trying to bring, bring these class actions for consumer products where you don't have a very easy way of determining who exactly bought the product. Right. So that's the primary argument that Rite Aid uh, in this case raised. And they said, you're never going to be able to identify it. It looks like there's nothing in the case to indicate that they were actually trying to argue that the pool was about what it looks like on the on the depiction. So uh, we have a $59 pool that is at least allegedly um, not performing the way it's supposed to or not looking the way it's supposed to. And then they raise this whole ascertainability issue. So talk about the ascertainability factors. So the ascertainability is um, the requirement that you be able to prove who the class is composed of. And if you interpret it very narrowly, as the defendants here argue, uh, they want to they're trying to imply that you need to be able to identify all the members of the class. This is typically not an issue when you do employment cases and you'd be able to look up the records. Uh, but then in cases like this, consumer cases, uh, there are some challenges. So first, the court goes over a history of the case law uh, that establishes the rules regarding ascertainability. Okay, and the most important thing to understand about ascertainability, as the court points out, that is that it is somewhat tethered to due process, meaning the idea is you're able to ascertain people who purchased the product or who were the victims of the fraud or whatever the case may be in a class action so that you can give them notice and an opportunity to be heard or an opportunity to opt out or an opportunity to object. And so the first it's thing It's a due is, process type of issue, right? Right. So is, is it an issue where if you, you're able to identify people or not able to identify people specifically that you're somehow violating due process? Right. Um, and the court concluded here that there isn't a violation, ultimately, if you are unable to give notice to every single person. Uh, they concluded specifically a due process doesn't dictate that certification uh, depends on every single absent class member getting notice of what's going yeah, on. Yeah, this is critical. I mean, they the court goes on to say due process does not mean that personal notice must go to every single class member. So, and I mean, exactly, because... 20 years ago, most class notices went out by publication. You did the best you could, but they did the best they can to notify people. But when you can't notify every single person, at least through some kind of method of publication or posting in the store or something like that, you should be able to reach most of the people who may have been affected by this. And they say that a representative plaintiff in a class action need not introduce evidence establishing how notice of the action will commence. So it goes even further than that. It says you don't even have to establish in a class certification motion that um, the exact names of all the people in the class are ascertainable. And they refer to it, Sean, as a bright line rule, which I think is critical. 
Yeah, that's, I think, the biggest uh, element here. They go on to give examples of different cases, like there's the DAR case, D-A-A-R, where a, a class was certified even though it, was, it had to do with taxicab customers, many of whom pay in cash, and there would ultimately be no way to get their information ahead of time and give them direct mailed notice personally about uh, what's going on in the action. So so they say that that it doesn't matter if there's class members that are unidentifiable. And then what they do is they say, let's look at the price or the amount at stake. And here it was fifty nine ninety five. Is that how much you paid for your pools? I think so. Was yours on sale when you got it, Brian? I, I, I prefer not to comment on that this time. Okay. And they said, you look at the price, you look at, at the odds that a class member will actually bring their own duplicative action, that people will respond to this. So it's a balancing test when you look at all these factors and you see the circumstances and you say that... You don't require personal notice to every single person that probably there's other ways of doing this, and there's the, the ascertainability requirement doesn't prohibit a court asked to certify a class from considering separate questions of notice to absent class members. So there's plenty of ways to do this. Great case. Uh, I think um, this just kind of demonstrates the forward looking of our, uh, of our California Supreme Court and, and of where they're, they're going with respect to these issues. Unfortunately, we wish the rest of the country would follow. Yeah, so this is a good case, and we're we're hopefully seeing a, tr- a trend because we're typically on the show saying that you know class actions are dying out; it's getting more and more difficult. But uh, moving on to the next case, we get some more positive news this time from the Ninth Circuit hey. Court of Appeal. From the Ninth Circuit, a good case. Um, some of the judges on this panel are not exactly what you'd call bastions of liberal viewpoint when it comes to class actions. But here's another case that they got right. So the case is Nguyen versus Nissan North America. Uh, this came out in the last couple of months, uh, I think in July at some point. And it has to do with auto defect. Um, as you can tell from the name, it's against Nissan. And there was a auto defect class action brought against Nissan for defective clutch systems um, that were built into this line of cars. Um, and they brought it under the Beverly Song and the different Lemon uh, or Song Beverly Act and different Lemon statutes. And Consumer Legal Remedies Act in right. California, right? Right. And the, the facts of it were that um, it was fixed once, but it was apparently fixed. The way they fixed it was to put the same defective part just in pristine condition back in, which apparently, because I know you're um, attuned to auto mechanics and you live this live for this stuff – um, it didn't do a good job of heat transfer, and eventually it overheats, and then the clutch system fails, and it becomes very expensive to replace. The second time it happened, it happened out of warranty. Another important issue in these class cases involving auto defects, because when they're out of warranty, a lot of times the defendants get out of the cases by saying, well, it's out of warranty. Too bad. There's nothing we could do about it. And an important thing to keep in mind in this case is that the clutch was defective, but the ultimate damage or problem with the performance of the cars manifested in different ways. Didn't really matter, though, is what the plaintiff argued. The plaintiff said, look, the only thing we're arguing here is that you've got to replace the defective clutch in every single car because it is a system-wide failure. It isn't one of these problems that would fail occasionally. It's something that would happen over and over again. It was just a matter of time. So defendant here was arguing that uh, predominance is an issue. So there's the different factors of uh, establishing uh, class certification. One of the important ones is a predominant question of law, predominance in questions of law and fact. And defendant here was arguing, well, we get that there's a problem with the clutch, but it manifests in different ways and causes different forms of damages to everyone. And the uh, Ninth Circuit Court of Appeal here clarified that distinction that Brian and I were 
just talking about, which is the plaintiff's theory here is that the defective clutch is the injury itself. Plaintiffs aren't complaining that the ultimate problem that manifests is the injury. The fact that they didn't get the benefit of the bargain is the the injury. That's absolutely right. It's a benefit of the bargain is the entire basis of the theory is that the same or substantial similar defects is going to happen in every single car. Whether it's manifested or not at this time, the defect is there and it exists. Right. This is a great case for all types of product cases, even for other consumer uh, financial types of uh, issues, class actions that you have, because the problem is you're not getting what you paid for. It doesn't matter if the clutch burned up and your car got destroyed. It doesn't matter if the clutch burned up and some other component failed. The problem is that the clutch is defective. Once you've established that th- threshold finding, um, you're not getting the benefit of the bargain. And I'm and sure what, this could be applied to other contexts, too. It's right. not just limited to cars. And what the district court focused on, what Nissan's argument basically was, is that the difference between the value that you got and the cost to replace is what the consumers would have gotten, and that's the way – and the court said no. They said Nissan's argument conflates cases where a defect causes an injury and those like this one where the defect itself is the injury. That's the key to the case. So defect is the injury. If there's a takeaway from this case, that's something to keep in mind. It's a great argument for when you're going to get challenged for uh, the predominance question. Right, and we see these cases. We see a lot of auto defect cases, which um, usually don't have arbitration agreements. They're still good class action cases. This makes it even better. Yeah. And, And just to sum it up, the court said plaintiff's theory is that the alleged defect which causes the injury is itself the injury, regardless of whether or not the faulty clutch actually caused performance issues. Yeah. Next case is also a good case coming from the third appellate district. It's Valentine versus Plum Healthcare Group, and it has to do with enforcing arbitration agreements in the context of uh, nursing care facility typical negligence. In, typical in nursing homes that people are admitted. And they're required to sign an arbitration agreement, and the arbitration agreement doesn't just bind them, but it binds their heirs to mandatory forced arbitration for elder abuse, among other claims, which is just sort of outrageous on its face, right? Yeah. Added twist here, uh, the decedent uh, was a lady named by, by the name of Leela uh, Valentine. Leela passed away due to uh, some alleged oh, horrible negligence. Facts. Terrible facts. She horrible got, facts. She went into septic shock. Because she had a urinary tract infection, which became septic, which wasn't treated, which they, they noticed that she had an increased fever, and although it's not really relevant for the case, I've handled uh, elder abuse cases before, and this this woman sounds like she had a completely treatable shoulder injury with some. It sounds like very modest memory problems. It wasn't it wasn't critical, and she went there to try to take care of her shoulder injuries because she couldn't move her shoulder, her arms because of the injury, and she ends up going into septic shock, and actually gets sort of victimized twice, once by the nursing home who abandoned her, and then once she got to the hospital, she was left for hours and hours before um, they administered antibiotics, and then it was too late, and within a few hours after that, she went into cardiac arrest and died. Yeah, terrible facts. Um, So the added twist here that I was talking about is that 
um, uh, Mr. Valentine, Roy Valentine, is the one that signed the arbitration agreement because Miss uh, Lila Valentine was unable to do it due to that shoulder shoulder injury. But she wasn't unable. They didn't even ask her, Sean. That's a critical issue. They didn't ask her if it was okay for Roy to sign for her. They didn't read it to her. They just made the leap, and they had the husband sign. He just happened to sign it. And they made, and all she, well, the only issue was, it wasn't that she couldn't comprehend it was that she couldn't actually sign it, so they did it outside of her presence. They had him sign, and um, then when it came time to file the action, the children of the decedent, as well as the husband of the decedent, were the plaintiffs, right? Yeah, the the, the husband and the children were, were the ones ultimately bringing the um, action. And, as well as on behalf of her estate. Right. And the trial court found that the trial court ultimately denied the petition to compel arbitration, uh, but they found that even though Roy, the husband, uh, signed it, the, the agreement was valid as to him, not because he was acting as the agent, but he expressly agreed that any claims that he'd have would be subject to arbitration. But, but one of the things that the nursing home argued was that Roy was their agent. There, Roy was her agent. There was ostensible agency. And the court said, hey, there's no evidence that right. that, that argument that was rejected. The yeah. decedent made that decision. There was no evidence she wasn't capable of making her own decisions. There was no evidence of that whatsoever. So the real issue in this case was um, they just made a conscious decision to have Roy sign it, probably for convenience purposes. And so at the end of the day, Roy was barred from pursuing the action because of an arbitration agreement or had to go to arbitration. But the children in the estate were perfectly fine to to sue in superior court. And then I believe the court didn't actually stay the case, right? No, the court didn't stay the case. Ultimately, the uh, court of appeal said that given that the children's case can proceed and it's not stayed, uh, the entire motion to compel arbitration should be denied because that could result in inconsistent findings of facts in law. So the case got to proceed. Yeah. And, so it's uh, a good outcome. It's a good framework for this. But that, the twist of it is, is that if the decedent had signed it, it would have not only bound her estate or her, but it would have bound her heirs, including her children, including her husband. And that's really bad. But I, I understand why these nursing homes want to go into arbitration, because I've tried these cases before, and uh, I would not want to be representing a nursing home in a case like this, um, where the the family of somebody who died because of neglect is suing. It's horrible. Yeah, they usually have terrible facts. The damages are whopping, too. You get trouble damages for elder abuse. Um, you can even get that for financial elder abuse. But So anytime you have these cases, you know it's important to look at the details surrounding the circumstances under which the arbitration agreement was signed. There's always something fishy around There's that you shouldn't give up automatically. Let's take a trip to the city of Temecula, shall we? Sounds like fun. Yep. Uh, Sounds like gonna, fun. We're going to do Hucky versus the city of Temecula. Yeah, it wasn't very fun for Mr. Hucky, though. So Mr. Charles Hucky got hurt um, while— this fourth DCA, right? Yes. Got hurt while walking on the sidewalk a few, a few what did he, I think, 30 paces away from his home. Uh, do you measure things in paces, Brian? Uh, when I can. Okay. When I can. I count. I only take five steps at a time, and then I take a break. Okay, yeah, just taking it easy. So Mr. Huckey is walking, and he trips over a sidewalk's edge. The sidewalk, just so you get a feel for how um, damaged it was, the differential was at some point 9 16th of an inch, 
and uh, as high as 1.2 inches at certain edges. And there's some discussion as to how high the differential between the, the portions of the sidewalk were at, at what distance away from the edge of the sidewalk. Okay, so let's start off by saying that this is, a, this is not a great result for the plaintiff in this case. That's very unfortunate, but extremely instructive because there is a doctrine out there called the trivial defect doctrine. And as you point out, Sean, what is a doctrine? Doctrine is something that's not based on case, uh, based on statute, but based on case law. Well, that's only that's correct. But here, yeah. it's sort of a hybrid because it it originates it in in statute. It is. So, it, it originates in statute, and over here, it originates in the Government Claims Act, uh, Section Eight Ten. Um, which basically says that the government may be liable for dangerous conditions. Right. So remember, a governmental entity on a tort case is only through a statute that it confers liability to the government as opposed to in the, in the regular course of things. Common law. There's no common law tort liability against the government. Is that right? Generally speaking, that's correct. But remember, if this had happened on private property, if this accident happened on private property, I don't believe the trivial defect doctrine would apply because it originates out of the government code. Right. And the trivial defect doctrine is something that I didn't really know of. I mean, I don't know much anyway. Right. Uh, which isn't surprising. Except where to buy small swimming pools. Right. <laughs> I know you got to go to Rite Aid. Sometimes they're on sale. Just ask Brian for his coupon. But um, the trivial defect doctrine is something that arises out of the uh, Section 810 of the Government Claims Act, which says that if the con- if the condition is dangerous, it creates a substantial risk, and then it distinguishes. It says, as distinguished from a minor, trivial, or insignificant risk. And that's where the trivial defect doctrine is spawned from. Yeah, and a lot of the case law surrounding the trivial defect doctrine has to do with old cases in the, from the 1970s against cities like Fielder versus City of Glendale from 77, and there's another one against uh, some other local, you know, small city. Um, right, So, so, but let's focus for one minute here on the trivial defect doctrine. So what we're talking about is a defect that is so trivial that it doesn't rise to the level of being a substantial defect, and therefore there's no liability. And here's where it gets really interesting, in my humble opinion. This is really not a question of fact for the jury. The, the trial court acts as a gatekeeper to determine whether or not the case can even go forward. And the trial court or the appellate court, and on review, it's de novo. It's not even substantial evidence. It's de novo. They look at this and they say whether or not it's a trivial defect. Yeah, it's kind of weird that this is – because if you really think about it, it sounds like a question of fact. Sure. Um, You're going to have an expert saying this is really dangerous and they should have fixed this. You're going to have someone saying it was this tall and at night I couldn't see it. It sounds like a very traditional, typical question of fact that you need to have a jury decide – but somehow this is a question of law. It's just really bizarre. And I think when we were talking about this before we started recording, I think we concluded that since the since it arises out of that Government Claims Act, maybe it's a question of interpretation of, of the law. So therefore it's, Of the statute, right? Yeah, it's so based it becomes upon a question of law. The statute. And the court's supposed to look at fundamentally two factors. The first factor they look at is the size of the defect. And then the court here actually agrees that size doesn't matter, which probably makes you very happy, Sean. Size doesn't matter. It's not the only factor. But if it if it initially look at it and it's small, <laughs> yeah, we're, we're just not going to be able to make it through this, are we? If, if they look at it and it's small, then they look at other issues to determine whether or not, despite the fact that it's trivial, there's additional factors that, that could apply. And here, one of the factors that the plaintiff was arguing is that it was covered in leaves, 
It was hard to see. There was dirt. And they were trying to say, even if you find it's small or trivial, that shouldn't be the end of the analysis. But the initial burden is on the governmental entity to establish it's trivial. Once they meet that, it shifts to the plaintiff to prove that it was not trivial. And in this case, they just couldn't prove that. Right. The city met its burden here because they said it's so tiny and it's you know not less than three quarters of an inch and they had their expert and they, they had that opinion but then the, uh, the the plaintiff couldn't rebut that finding and they couldn't you know it shifted to them they couldn't rebut it and and the last thing I want to say here about this case is that it almost near the end of the opinion the Court of Appeals says the height differential would have been in plain sight. The, the record shows that the height differential – so if the height differential was in plain sight, how could it actually be trivial? trivial. I find that bizarre too. There's a lot of like quirky things about this. The, the, one of the other things that I had circled here was the height, differen- uh, height differential was trivial as a matter of law. You know, when's the last time you found that type of a factual statement? You right. know, someone saying that uh, John Smith was driving reasonably as a matter of law. Right. You, that you, no you reasonable jury, that. no reasonable jury can infer otherwise. So, uh, just something to be aware of, particularly in these types of cases against governmental entities. Like you said, Sean, it's something that people don't encounter all the time. I bet uh, people take cases sometimes against governmental entities and aren't aware of this, and it's a good one to keep on their radar. So that's all we have for you today. We appreciate you listening. This is Civil Action, Brian Kabatek and Sean uh, Karnicki. We try to do this on a weekly basis and provide these quick updates on the law. And you can find us online at kbklawyers.com. We have not yet posted a picture of Brian in his pool um, that he bought from Rite Aid, but uh, we'll try to get that up there. And you can follow us on Apple Podcasts and Spotify and everywhere else you listen to us. We'd love to hear some feedback from you. So please contact us if you have any questions, and we'd love to hear from you. Thanks a lot.